Today we begin a six-week series on the book of Acts. We're not covering every verse in Acts, but uh, six selected uh, texts we're going to look at. Uh, if you're uh, new to the Bible, uh, the book of Acts records for us the, um, the origin of the church uh, over a 30-year period of time. And so we welcome you in on this study as we try to think together uh, in this six-week period about our mission uh, as a church. And so let's pray together uh, before we jump into uh, to this particular study. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have now as we think about uh, all that you did in this 30-year period of time. We pray that you would use our lives in a similar way. And I pray that you would use this study of ours in the book of Acts, not merely to make our heads fat, but to train and equip us and to give us confidence uh, and encouragement to bear witness to Jesus Christ, just like our ancestors here in the book of Acts uh, have shown us. And so we pray that you would come and have your way in our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Well, as you've uh, traveled around the United States, I'm sure at some point in your life, uh, you've traveled across a state line. And usually when you cross a state line, uh, there's not a whole lot that changes. Uh, you know, if you drive up to, say, Virginia, your radio doesn't suddenly stop working or, uh, you know, there's, the scenery doesn't change all that much. You do see more state troopers, I think, in Virginia. But other than that, it's, it's very similar. Or as you drive through Maryland and then into Pennsylvania and then into New York, you kind of cross these lines without thinking a whole lot uh, about it. If you go west, you know, into eastern Tennessee, uh, it's very similar terrain, and, and you, if you don't see the sign, you wouldn't really, uh, really know about it. If you go south into South Carolina, there is one particular feature that grabs your attention. It's called the South of the Border Roadside Attraction, and I think that uh, some of you apparently have seen this, uh, this attraction. Uh, other than that, there's not a whole lot of change from uh, North Carolina uh, into South Carolina. But in the book of Acts, you see the gospel crossing great lines of significant boundaries. When the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Samaria, that's a bigger jump than North Carolina to South Carolina. Right? It was a great jump. And then you see the gospel jump into modern-day Turkey, into Greece, into great cities like Ephesus, and eventually into the epicenter of, of the world at that time, Rome. The book of Acts shows us the unrelenting progress of the gospel over a 30-year period of time. That the gospel goes not into different, not just different geographical parts of the world, but into different segments of society. That the good news breaks through into Roman law courts, into Greek philosophers, rural Asian farmers, government officials. All sorts of people are transformed by the good news of Jesus. One old commentator, Albert Barnes, had a good day when he wrote this. This book contains incontrovertible evidence of the truth of Christianity. It is a record of the early triumphs of Christianity. Within the space of 30 years after the death of Christ, the gospel had been carried to all parts of the civilized and to no small portion of the uncivilized world. Its progress and its triumphs were not concealed. Its great transactions were not done in a corner. It had been preached in the most splendid, powerful, and corrupt cities, Churches were already founded in Jerusalem, Antioch, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, and Rome. The gospel had been spread into Arabia, Asia Minor, Greece, Macedon, Italy, and Africa. It had assailed the strongest existing institutions. It had made its way over the most formidable barriers. It had encountered the most deadly and malignant opposition. 
It had traveled to the capital and had secured such a hold, even in the imperial city, as to make it certain that it would finally overturn the established religion and seat itself upon the ruins of paganism. Within 30 years, it had settled the point that it would overturn every bloody altar, close every pagan temple, bring under its influence the men of office, rank, and power, and that the banners of faith would soon stream from the palaces of the Caesars. That's what we read in the book of Acts. There are several summary statements in Acts that shows us how the gospel was advancing. Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And look at this line. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Many of those same priests that were saying, Crucify him, became obedient to the faith. Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Or after James uh, was, was martyred in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, Luke says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And I love how he documents how it's the word of God that's increasing and multiplied. It's the gospel, right? God buries the messengers, but the message goes on right? Acts uh, 16.5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And after Paul spent two years in Ephesus in the hall of Tyrannus and started a riot, and they had to whisk him out of the city, Luke says, in this way the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed in Ephesus. All that to say, the gospel really is the power of God. And if we're going to be his witnesses today, we need to have an unshakable confidence that the gospel still works that it can still break through hardened hearts. It can still transcend barriers. Now here's a loose outline of the book of Acts. The first uh, portion uh, is in chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 8. God empowers His witnesses in Jerusalem. And then we see in Acts 8-4 that God scatters His witnesses to Judea and Samaria. He scattered them because of persecution. They go out uh, into Judea and Samaria. Then we get in Acts 13 into Acts 21, we read usually what we call Paul's three missionary journeys, and we see that God sends his witnesses into uh, these different uh, parts of the world, into Turkey and into Greece and so on. And then finally, God delivers his witness, Paul, to Jerusalem and to Rome. And so it's all about how God is empowering, scattering, sending, delivering his witnesses. And so over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to have a look at this uh, book together. Uh, We've studied it verse by verse before, so we're we're not going to do that again, but we thought it would be good to spend a few weeks after finishing Luke's first book uh, to have a look here at the book of Acts. So Walter will preach on uh, the witnesses in Jerusalem next week. My friend Doug will pick up in Acts chapter 8 as Philip goes into Samaria and ministers to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then I'll look at Paul's journey to Philippi in Acts 16 then his time in Athens in Acts 17, and finally uh, Walter will finish with uh, Paul in Corinth. And that particular Sunday, as a side note, we'll be uh, meeting outside, weather permitting, uh, for a special outdoor service. But don't get distracted by that right now. We're just right here in the moment, okay? Um, And and our prayer, our hope in this series, again, is not just that we would learn some stuff, which we want to do, but that we would live with a greater urgency to commend Christ, to, to, be, to be about his, his, uh, his work of bearing witness to Jesus with, with a greater sense of urgency locally and globally. And to be encouraged by the fact, and Acts shows us this, that God uses ordinary people to accomplish this mission. Right? One historian put it this way, the primary change agents 
in the spread of the faith were men and women who earned their livelihood in some secular manner and spoke their faith to whom they met in a natural fashion. So this is my summary of, of Acts. I'll say it two or three times in this sermon. The book of Acts is about the ordinary people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, equipped with the Word of God, captivated by the Son of God, and they can accomplish the mission of God. The ordinary people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, equipped with the Word of God, captivated by the Son of God, can accomplish the mission of God. And that's encouraging to us. Now, the book of Acts begins with already in progress. As we see that Luke is writing a second book to his friend Theophilus. What a good friend Luke is to write his, his friend two massive books uh, to talk about the origins of the faith. And the book of Acts ends with to be continued, though it doesn't say that literally, but that's the vibe you get at the end of Acts 28, where it just sort of abruptly ends with Paul ministering uh, in Rome. And the implication is that the church is continuing in this mission. So as we think about the history of our church at Imago Day, people often ask, like, how old is your church? We could, we could basically say, about 2,000 years old. Because this history is our history. These people are not you know, separated from us, but these are our brothers and sisters. And we are part of that family business, right, of, of, of carrying out the gospel uh, to the ends of the earth. So let's look at this first portion here in Acts 1, 1 to 11. I'll spend most of my time on verse 8. Uh, but let's start with uh, verses 1 to 5 as we see Luke writing about the promise of the Spirit. All right, We read in verse 1 again that he's writing to Theophilus, and in his first book he said he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, we, as you look through the book of Acts, there are at least three purposes for this book. One is a historical purpose that Luke is simply writing as a good historian about the origins of Christianity. There's also a very subtle political purpose, I think, that's woven throughout the book. Not a, a political in the way we think of, of politics today, but rather trying to uh, basically argue that Christianity was not a threat to Roman rule, that the goal wasn't to overthrow Rome uh, politically, even though subtly that would happen as people became believers uh, in Jesus. But you see a lot of Roman leaders and uh, centurions and so on that are presented in a, in a positive light. So there's some of that going on in, in Luke. But I think the, 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 the third reason, and this is very important, Luke is writing with an evangelistic purpose. There are only 28 chapters in Luke, but there are 32 speeches. So one-third of the book is speech material. It's sermon. And this answers the question, what led to the explosive growth of the church? It was the proclamation of the gospel. And that's what we're to be on about today. So he's writing to Theophilus, and he says, in my first book, I, I, I wrote about what Jesus, notice this, began to do and teach. To do and to teach. Jesus has works and he has words. He has deeds and he has the message. And these two go together. Calvin called this the holy knot of the works and words of Jesus. Some things don't go together. Like when you pass up the restaurants that are combined, like KFC and Taco Bell, it's like... <laughs> Beloved, these things should not be. Like, uh, <laughs> but the words and, and deeds of Jesus are not like Taco Bell and KFC. They go together. And, and we, too, carry out the mission of Jesus with, with good works. As Titus, uh, Paul says to Titus, we adorn the doctrine of our God 
with, with our behavior, with our works, with our mercy, our justice, and so on. But we also have the words of life that we are proclaiming. And you notice how he says it. All that Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication is Jesus is not finished with his work. He's actually still working right now. Luke was about what he began, but the work is not finished. He's continuing his work through his people, by the Spirit and his word. So the revolution continues. What Luke began, it's still happening. So if we were to say, man, I wish, I wish Jesus were on earth today. I wish he could minister on earth. He is ministering through his people. Through his people. What a privilege we have. What a, what a responsibility we have. Now, he says all this before he says Jesus was taken up, verse 2. He's just uh, referring to the ascension, which carries some real similarity to Elisha, who was taken up, 2 Kings 2. And prior to that, uh, or Elijah was taken up, Elisha asked for a double portion of the Spirit to carry out the mission of Elijah. And so it is with Jesus, the greater Elijah, he's carried up into heaven, and he pours out his Spirit on his disciples to continue his ministry. Before the ascension, verse 2, it says that he gave commands to these apostles through the Holy Spirit. He presented himself alive uh, after suffering, that, referring to the crucifixion, with many proofs. And it says that Jesus, in verse 3, appeared with his apostles for 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. This, is the, this was the focus of his teaching about his kingdom. And it was for 40 days. This, uh, this uh, highlights the fact that they had sufficient training. Uh, 40 days or 40 years, you see throughout the scriptures, uh, uh, different kinds of trainings. Israel was trained for 40 years in the wilderness before entering the promised land. Moses' preparation of 40 years uh, also before he was uh, into leadership, 40 days on the mountain and so on. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. And the 40 days motif here is emphasizing the fact that you can trust the apostles' teaching, that Jesus spent considerable time with them, and he teaches them about the kingdom. And so the kingdom is mentioned here, and then at the very end of the book of Acts, in Acts 28, it says that Paul, under house arrest, was occupied by teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus speaks about the kingdom, his people speak about the kingdom. This is our message to the world, repent and believe in the king. Come and seek first his kingdom. Now, before they get about that work, Luke tells us about a specific instruction that Jesus gave them. While he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And he says, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So negatively, he says, do not depart from Jerusalem. That we're, we're, we're anticipating as we read the Old Testament that from the Davidic Messiah, blessing will flow to the nations. So it starts in Jerusalem, but in the book of Acts, it's not everybody saying, hey, everybody move to Jerusalem. What begins there is the epicenter that goes out until the ends of the earth. And then positively, he says, wait for the promise of the Father. So right from the beginning of the book of Acts, we see the Trinitarian nature of the church. The Son tells the apostles about the Father's promise concerning the Spirit. And so these guys will go to Jerusalem, and they will wait on this promise. This, and if you're, again, new to the Bible, in chapter 2, it's what we call Pentecost, where the new covenant age dawns, and the Spirit of God indwells every believer. And there are some remarkable signs that give evidence that that day has come. 
And so they are to wait on that, this promise of the Father that would come as the, the, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon these guys. And this is important because we see that uh, in the book of Acts, other than Paul, these were not guys with a lot of formal education. And yet Jesus turns the world upside down with them. And I can imagine when they're getting all this commission, like, are you serious, pal? You want me to go to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth? Have you ever felt unprepared for something? <laughs> Just a couple weeks ago, I was walking in the neighborhood, and um, I was down a couple streets from my house, and uh, one of my neighbors saw me, and we started talking, and he said, hey, they spotted a coyote uh, on the street over, which happened to be my street. <laughs> and I was like, I am not prepared for a coyote. You know, like, I never went to coyote defense school uh, all I have under me are a couple episodes of Roadrunner and uh, Wiley Coyote. What, like, what am I going to do when I encounter a I, by, Thankfully, I did not encounter. I, you walk by faith and not by sight. I just went home and did not see a coyote, so thankfully. But I, I felt very under-equipped. And when you hear of the commission that Jesus gives us, it is right to feel desperate, but it's also right to understand we have everything we need. These apostles had the gospel and they had the holy spirit they had no buildings they had no seminaries they they had no publishing house they had no airplanes they had enough because the ordinary people of god equipped by the word of god empowered by the spirit of god captivated by the son of god can accomplish the mission of god right up front in acts you see the source of power that's needed and we have it because we are living in that new covenant age. So now let's think about this call to witness that follows on the heels of this promise. The disciples are a little slow on the uptick, as usual, as they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? <laughs> you kind of wonder what Jesus is thinking sometimes, as he just spent 40 days talking about this kingdom, and now they're asking, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Calvin says there are as many errors as, uh, in the question as words. Um, it's a little critical, I think, but tended to be his ways. But um, it, they were still trying to, to put it together. Uh, and it actually wasn't a dumb question. I mean, he's been talking about this kingdom. But they had a really hard time getting beyond the fact that it's not a political kingdom, that it's not a geographically restricted kingdom, that it's not an ethnically restricted kingdom. And so their focus is on Israel. Will you restore this kingdom of Israel? And they also presume the predictability of the kingdom. This already but not yet kingdom. The not yet part. They're asking, is it, when is it going to be time? And Jesus basically says, that's none of your business. And then he says, but this is your business. What's not your business in verse 7 is speculating about the end. Even though there are hundreds of people that have thought through the years that they are the exception to this rule, that we cannot know the time of the end, Jesus says, you do not know. So the question is not when, but what do we do until then? That's what should occupy our hearts and our minds. And Jesus tells us what we are to do until then in verse 8. And really what is the key of the book of Acts, arguably, you could call this some, it's kind of like the table of contents of the book when he says but you will receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria to the ends of the earth the final words of jesus they are of first importance to us 
The kingdom will advance through their witness. A witness is simply someone who testifies to something important. And they concentrate much of their, if not most of their witness, on the resurrection of Jesus, which they had witnessed. So we see them drawing attention to this throughout the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of, all, and, and of that we are all witnesses. Or Acts 3, 15, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. There's a strong echo throughout this verse, also from various parts of Isaiah, like Isaiah 43, 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, as God commissions Israel to be a light to the nations. Now what I would like for us to do now is just slow down and linger a bit on verse 8, and I want to draw your attention to five truths regarding the church's witness. First of all, notice the people who witness. Now here Jesus is speaking to the apostles, and we will not be witnesses in a foundational sense like the apostles, because we were not direct observers of the crucifixion and resurrection. But the apostles are a bridge between the ministry of Jesus and then the ministry of the church. Uh, Patrick Shiner says it well, the apostles stand as representative ideal characters that, that the church emulates. So as we look at these various witnesses in the book of Acts, Stephen and Philip and Paul and Peter and so on, these are ideal characters that we are to emulate. And the reason we believe that everybody is a witness is because every believer in the new covenant age is given the Spirit. Like in chapter 2, verse 17, as Peter is drawing attention to the day that has come, he says, in the last days it shall be, uh, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That every believer in Jesus can now communicate the gospel. They can all proclaim the gospel, not in an institutional sense or in like a church position, but we are all called and empowered to bear witness to Christ. We're not observers as church members. We're participants in this mission. Being part of the church is not like going to the movies. It's like joining the army. We're in a mission. We're not spectators. Like if you go watch the NBA playoffs, like you were only a spectator. They won't let you play. <laughs> you can imagine walking down to the coach, avoiding security somehow, and saying, hey, pal, I think you should put me in. I got a, I got a, a smooth jump shot. Um, no, you don't get a play, okay? You're a spectator, but in the church, you get to play. And because we all have the Holy Spirit. And these everyday saints turned the first century world upside down. It was accomplished, as one writer says, by the means of informal missionaries. You see this uh, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. After uh, persecution happens in Jerusalem, when God scatters his witnesses to Judea and Samaria, Luke says in Acts 8, 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And you read up in the, at the beginning of chapter 8, you see that it was everyone except the apostles. So it's just the average Joe and Jane who are out gossiping the gospel as they've been scattered by the sovereignty of God. Writing on this, Michael Green says, they were scattered from their base in Jerusalem, and they went everywhere spreading the good news which had brought great joy, release, and a new life to themselves. This must often have not been formal preaching, but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. 
They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who were not paid to say sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously, and the movement spread notably among the lower class. These little amateur missionaries went about in all of these different places of society commending Christ. And the reality is we talk about things we love all the time, don't we? Whether it's grandkids or restaurants or great weather, our favorite shoes, we're evangelists for things we love. And what we need is a captivated heart that we adore Jesus and speak out of the overflow of that. And that we have people in our minds that we want to hear the good news. Don't you have someone in your mind today? My friend One in South Africa, they recently did a baptism service and he gave a, a note card to every, uh, every person in the, in the room. And on one side it said, one more. And on the other side he had everyone write down one name of someone they want to see in those baptistry waters. And at the conclusion of the service he had them all come and drop their note card in the baptistry and commit to pray for them until they see them in the baptistry. That's a beautiful image. And that's the kind of burden I pray that we would cultivate in our own souls. That we, by the power of the Spirit, will be able to commend the gospel to friends, neighbors, co-workers, enemies, uh, whoever it might be, and see them confess faith in Jesus Christ, celebrate their profession of faith. Well, secondly, notice here the path of a witness. You don't see it exactly in verse 8 at first glance, but the word witness is the word from which we get the word martyr. It's, it's really embedded in the very idea that there will be some measure of sacrifice every time we bear witness to Christ. And the gospel will not advance without some measure of suffering. Stephen is martyred. James is beheaded. Paul is ran out of town, beaten up, and so on. But Jesus is worth it. The gospel never triumphs without some measure of sacrifice. You might call this the law of missions. The gospel advances where there's sacrifice. And I think there's another law that you kind of see at work when you go about doing the work of, of bearing witness to Jesus, that effectiveness uh, and opposition often happen at the same time. Like, why is it that they were so opposed? Well, the, the effectiveness was, was rising and so was the, the opposition. So as we sign up for this, this army of witnesses, we recognize that it's not going to be comfortable and easy all the time. It will at least be an inconvenience to us, but often it will, it will cost us a whole lot more than that. Now thirdly, encouragingly, we see the power of the witness that's already been mentioned in verse 8. This is the power that gives us the ability to mirror the ministry of Jesus. Often in the book of Acts, what you see is that the, the Spirit's filling of a believer is, is uh, in tandem with some act of speaking. So for example, in Acts chapter 4, when persecution arises in the church, they pray for boldness, not to escape persecution, but for boldness. And Luke writes in Acts 4.31, when they had prayed, the place to which they were gathered together were shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so it's the power of God that we need in order to, to, to have that kind of boldness in today's world for sure, right? These unordained nobodies, as someone called them, turned the world upside down. They had no backing. They had no reputation among the Greeks, Jews, or Romans. Religiously, they were viewed as superstitious. But they had the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, we see the people in need of a witness. And it's the nations. Jerusalem and all Judea 
in Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now, as I said, this is not just geographical, it's cultural. These are radically different cultures. And I think each reference that Jesus gave these apostles would have brought anxiety to them. Hey guys, I want you to be my witness in Jerusalem. And they were like, are you kidding? Where they just crucified Jesus? <laughs> Judea, where we were just rejected? Samaria? We hate those people. Remember, John wanted to torch them, burn them all up. Hey guys, this is where I'm going to send you. Asia and Greece? How are we even going to get there? To the ends of the earth? To Rome? Seriously? It's a big mission. It's an amazing mission. Now, as you think about our mission, you may break it down in four categories as you think about both culture and ge geography, okay? There is near, far, far, near, 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 and far, far. I wonder if you can repeat that. Near, far. What I mean by that is that you may live close to someone, but they may be a long way away from you culturally. Right? So right here in Raleigh, we have a lot of diversity. You may be in the same city, you may be in the triangle, but there's a lot, of, a lot of barriers you've got to get across. Or far near. So maybe you like in a city, say like Richmond, Virginia, that's somewhat similar to Raleigh. A couple hours away, but it's, there's some similarity there. Near near would be like, usually at least, your neighborhood. Or there's far, far, and that's international missionaries. Long way away and radically different cultures. And the book of Acts shows us that the gospel can advance along all of those barriers. What, what we have to do in our hearts is relinquish our prejudice and our unconcern for people not like us and for, for, and for people who do not live uh, beside us. To have a big vision of mission because this is our mission. And to believe that we have enough to see the gospel break through. Like, do you believe that the gospel could even break through North Korea? Or into particular Muslim countries? Or into secular America? And Europe? That's what we're given here in chapter 1. It's amazing. It's amazing, as, as the Brits say, this mission. Now finally, notice here the passion of a witness. It is Jesus. As Jesus is saying these things, he's taken up, a cloud is there, a sign of glory, and they're gazing into heaven, and two men stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What's the passion of a witness? It's this Jesus. You see, it's this Jesus that captivated the heart of the apostles. He's here taken up, and they are first, you know, captivated by the ascension itself. And I, can you blame them? They had never seen an ascension. <laughs> Jesus goes into some other dimension. I can't explain how all of that worked, but I just know like when someone lets a balloon go in the air, we all go. Like, <laughs> you've seen hundreds of them before, but there it goes, you know. Can you imagine? They're just staring. What, what happened to him? And the, the angels have to be like, hey guys, get, come, calm down. Not like he said, men of Galilee. <laughs> they were the rednecks. Hey, hey guys, I know you haven't seen a whole lot. You haven't been out very much. Just <laughs> calm down a little bit, okay? This same Jesus that went up will come again in the same way. Daniel tells us in Daniel 7 that he went to the ancient of days, took his place. 
Now, it's not that there will be some kind of like movie in reverse. I don't think we read it in that way. But, but the idea that Jesus will come again, as he did there, as he was taken up physically, visibly, gloriously. Just as they were awestruck by the ascension of Jesus, we too will be awestruck by the return of Jesus. And you see, it's when this Jesus captivates our hearts that we begin to get a zeal for mission. Because there is no zeal for mission without zeal for the king. The mission follows the zeal for the king. And so let's never cease to be captivated by Jesus as we live in awe of Jesus in view of the coming of Jesus. This Jesus who ascended is coming again. And may the Lord give us spirit-empowered boldness as we seek to be his witness, as we cross all sorts of boundaries in this life, bearing the good news to the world that Jesus Christ has conquered death. He solved our greatest problem, and he's coming again. And they can know him. And if you're not a Christian, you can know him today. We would love to introduce you to a, a relationship with our Lord Jesus. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement of Acts chapter 1, for the challenge of Acts chapter 1, for the grand vision that it gives us for life, for the hope it gives us that one day we're going to see our King again. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you today and to take the Lord's Supper and to be reminded of what you have done for us in the past, but also what you have for us in the future. And I pray that you would use this time of taking the bread and the cup to strengthen our faith and build us up in our most holy faith that we would be faithful until we see you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen.